And what drew me to her, and I say this, um, is that she walks with me. This is Alyssa, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. In today's episode, we're introducing our iConversation series, which is going to run for all of Black History Month, where we ask Black feminist anthropologists five questions about their lives and careers. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Irma McLaurin today. Dr. Irma McLaurin is a woman of many talents who believes that you must change minds, change hearts, and change behavior to achieve transformation. She is an activist biocultural anthropologist who studies the social construction of inequality. Dr. McLaurin earned her PhD in anthropology in 1993 and went on to become a faculty member at the University of Florida. She is the author and editor of several books on topics including the culture of Belize, Black feminism, African-American history, and her own poetry. Dr. McLaurin went on to serve as editor of the journal Transforming Anthropology, a program officer at the Ford Foundation, and the first female president of Shaw University. She's also founder and senior consultant of Irma McLaurin Solutions. In 1975, Dr. McLaurin won the Gwendolyn Brooks Literary Award for Poetry, and in 2015, the Black Press of America named her essay, A Black Mother Weeps for America, Stop Killing Our Black Sons, as the best in the country for that year. In 2016, Dr. McLaurin founded the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive. Her vision for the archive is that it will be a game changer by preserving and showcasing the intellectual and activist contributions of Black feminists for all eternity. Just, wow. So it was truly an honor speaking with Dr. McLaurin. Her edited volume, Black Feminist Anthropology, changed the game for me as a young Black feminist anthropologist. How many, I mean, how many years ago did I read that? Like 10? Um, (laughs) And her work has paved the way for all of us to use the tools of anthropology to do the work that we want to do. So speaking with her was incredibly inspirational. I left the conversation speechless. And y'all know that's hard for a Gemini like me. Um, We also learned that Dr. Irma is an Aries uh, and her confidence and self-assuredness really proved that Aries y'all have no fear just Mm -hmm. none (laughs) something to aspire to (laughs) over the span of her lifetime she's accomplished so much and she continues to walk in alignment with her purpose and her calling and I think that was truly the 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 gift that we were shown and and given in this interview that we got to have with her. So thank you, Dr. Irma, for being an example to all of us Black feminist anthros and listeners. Y'all are truly in for a treat. Mm -hmm. There were so many gems in our conversation that I just kept stopping and taking notes. Mm -hmm. I was was thrilled to hear that she is what she calls a blank slate anthropologist because I was like, girl, me too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I started my master's with not one single course in anthropology, but I just felt like it was the right place for me. And I hold a little insecurity about that. You know, I constantly worry that I haven't read enough or I don't know enough, but she certainly did not let that hold her back. And she definitely showed to me that I don't need to let it hold me back either. So one of the things that got my ears perked up and you all listen out for this part of the conversation, she was hanging out with James Baldwin, Tony Cade Bambara, mm-hmm. Chinua Achebe. And it seemed like even then she just knew that she was part of this cohort of excellence. And even though she talked about, you know, different things being the highlight of her careers, plural, her legacy really seems to be creating space and opportunities for the people coming up behind her. And that's what truly um, was inspirational to me. So thank you, Dr. McLaurin, for meeting with us. 
and you all just sit down, listen. Yeah, get ready to take some notes, honey. Pull, pull your <laughs> Zora's daughter's notebook out uh, and your <laughs> pen, right? And listen to our I conversation with Dr. Irma McLaurin. Here goes. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McLaurin. We're just so excited to have this conversation. And honestly, you just are one of the Black feminist anthropologists that um, I hold close in my heart. So this is really just doing a lot for me today. Um, so we are going to start off by talking about the new and exciting film that is out, um, American Experience, that is on Zora Neale Hurston. And you are in the film. Um, so I am. Yeah, so we would just love to hear about, um, yeah, your role in the film and how you felt about it. And just, could you just tell us a little bit more about like what, yeah, your role and what you were talking about and why you were excited to talk about Zora? Well, I think, you know, there's always a backstory when you're doing uh, to anthropology. And so the backstory is that I was contacted by the filmmakers, uh, uh, Tracy and uh, Randall, and what they basically said is we've read everything that you've written about Zora Neale Hurston. And I think I'm one of the few people who has done more than just write one essay about her as an anthropologist. And I've been situating her as an anthropologist for now almost three decades. I started doing this research in the 1990s when I moved to the University of Florida. I was tenured there and I was the uh, director of what we called the Zora Neale Hurston Diaspora Study Group. And it wasn't really a center, but it was sort of a collection. And I taught a course on uh, women in the African diaspora. And so one of the requirements was that students participate in this monthly conversation in which people would bring their research about the diaspora, about gender, and really sort of their ethnographic practices and get feedback from the from the, the the intellectual community on campus. So we had anthropologists, we had historians, we had people from the Center for Latin American Studies. And that was, you know, beginning to really, I would say, ground Zora in practice, mm -hmm. not just in sort of theory and writing, but also in practice. But my love for Zora actually predates me becoming an anthropologist. My first degree is in creative writing. I have an MFA, a terminal degree in English. And so I was teaching Zora Neale Hurston from the point of view of literature well before I thought about her deeply as an anthropologist. I knew that that was part of her biography, but I don't know that I thought about her practice as an anthropologist very seriously until I became one. Mm. And so um, my, my love for Zora actually predates me becoming an anthropologist. I started teaching her as literature. And when I became an anthropologist, I was very much drawn to the work that she had done in Mules and Men. Mm -hmm. And she really situates herself in what we now call native anthropology. And so my first theoretical paper is on being, quote unquote, a native. Uh, in anthropology and really sort of examining critically, what does it mean when you study people who look like you or who are part of your own community? Mm. So I did research in Belize. I started my master's doing research uh, on a black woman who, journalist who had committed suicide. And then I moved the question about identity formation to the African diaspora, looking at Belize, Central America, uh, and looking at the Black women who were there, and there are two, there are Creole women as well as Garifuna. So you also had this mm -hmm. diversity within the Blackness. And one of the things that has really drawn me to Zora's anthropology is that I think she understood the concept of the diaspora as a kind of um, area to study. So I started out doing being in area studies, the Caribbean, and then I realized that the kinds of questions that I wanted to pose about Black women were relevant to Black women in the United States, in the Caribbean, in Africa. And so I really sort of situate my work now in the African diaspora. And I believe that Zora really understood that, that she had understood the connection between the South as well as the Caribbean and the Honduras. And so she was making those connections. She didn't call it diaspora studies, mm -hmm. but she was actually doing diaspora studies before we had invented the term. So that has been 
part of my journey is looking at how how did literature, her background in literature, inform the way that she wrote her anthropology? And how did her ethnographic practice actually going in and learning about different cultures and language and just the folkways of, of, of the rural South, how did that inform the literature that she wrote as she became an, a practicing anthropologist? And I began to see the overlap and so one of the things that happened for me is that she served as an inspiration that I did not have to write in a very traditional academic way. And I think that's the most powerful lesson that I take with from her is the way in which I can use what I brought with me in terms of a creative stylistic approach to writing and use that to talk about, to, to sort of present the data that I've actually collected on the ground. And so the two, to me, complement each other very much. And Zora is a great example of that. Yes. And um, I think one thing that we have in common is, is being inspired by Zora's work. And particularly, I remember reading Mules and Men and being like, oh, like there's there's space for me to write like the poet or the the creative yes. writer that I am in anthropology. And, and we also see that reflected in... Um, your volume, Black Feminist Anthropology, yes. right? That, that di diasporic approach, as well as these kind of creative approaches to writing about Black women. So um, to see that influence and to know that um, that we share that connection through Zora and as, a, as part of her legacy is really amazing to hear. And, and I think her contribution to what we now call autoethnography, mm -hmm. where she's taking ethnography, but she is introducing the self into the landscape is really the driving force behind what makes Black feminist anthropology so powerful, is that the question I posed to all the contributors was very simple. How has your, how has your life, your experience growing up as a Black woman in the United States informed the kind or shaped the kind of anthropology that you decided to do? That was the simple question that was posed. And everyone came at it from lots of different, different approaches. And I encouraged them to be inventive in the way that they wrote about it, that this was not going to be sort of your traditional theoretical essay, you know, with footnotes and all of that, mm -hmm. that they could be creative. And, and it gave people, I think, some people an opportunity uh, to explore forms of writing about the you know the the material and theorizing about their own work in ways that I think uh, they certainly drew upon the kinds of contributions that Zora Neale Hurston had made. As you were as you were speaking, I'm hearing that you you know first of all I know you've published countless books, articles, poetry as well. I saw you've had decades in in the discipline. You know you mm -hmm. said thirty years of just studying Zora. Um, and studying her work. And, you know, you mentioned the questions that you wanted to ask of Black women when you were getting started with your research in Belize. So looking back on the body of your work, what was your central preoccupation or the overarching question that you were trying to answer with your research? If I were to put it in folk parlance, uh, it would go something like, I'm interested in understanding why some folk got and some folk don't got. Mm. Now, in more traditional standard social science language or vernacular, I, I, I do research on the construction of social inequality. And so I'm interested in systems. I'm interested in behavior. I'm interested in, I, you know, sort of uh, cultural values and beliefs that inform that. But I'm also interested in people's behavior. That is, when confronted with inequality or oppression, how do people navigate that? You know, what are the tools and, and the resources that they have available to them? How do they navigate it? How do they sometimes participate in, in sort of reinforcing it, reaffirming it, and how do they challenge it? So that sort of constitutes the totality of what I do when I'm looking at uh, the construction of social inequality. And it, it picks up on anthropology's primary question. The central question that undergirds all of anthropology from all four fields is what makes us human. 
That's the uh, that's the underlying question, whether it's from an archaeological perspective, biological, linguistic, or cultural. That's the question that we're trying to answer. What makes us human? That was really the underlying question that Zora wanted to present to the world. What is the humanity of Black people in the mm -hmm. South? And she tries to sh she chose she she chose to show us that through the language. Uh, that they use through the stories they tell, through the way in which they interact, the social interactions. So she's looking at it from lots of different points of view. And uh, we get a richness there that we don't often see when we read the traditional ethnographic uh, accounts, right? There's a kind of distancing. And she's also in it. Mm -hmm. That's the other piece is that one of the things in interpretive anthropology and reflexive anthropology that we have come to understand is that our presence in the field changes something. You know, we're not like an omniscient narrator. You know, you read the novel and there's the omniscient narrator who's sort of standing on high and they can sort of see everything, but you don't know who they are. They're not in it. They're above it. And I think what Zora demonstrated to us is that you really have to be in it. You have to account for yourself, you know, in the work that the field work that you're doing, because it does change the dynamics. Your presence, you know, is not an absent presence. It's very much influencing the dynamics, you know, of, of what is taking place uh, every day. And the longer you stay, perhaps the less conscious people are about your presence, but certainly you being there is is a variable, is a factor that needs to be accounted for. Yes, and even in um, listening to you talk about Zora's contributions as a Southern, you know, African-American ethnographer, filmmaker, creative uh, writing artist, um, and it made me think about like the time in which her work emerged, right? Where we have a lot of, of black men who are writing about life in the North or life in Chicago, life in New York. And so to really bring that Southern, that rural South um, ethnography forward is something that was really new to the field of anthropology, but also to just the field of writing about black folks in general. Because um, at that time it was a lot about, you know, the, culture of poverty or the culture, you know, of Blackness is something that was, um, like, how do I say this in a way that wasn't how W.E.B. Du Bois said it, um, <laughs> but, you know, a culture of Blackness in a way that, um, that was, you know, negative or something that we needed to kind of make up for the fact that we weren't meeting certain white standards. And yeah. so that's something that, like, really, I, I see in your work as well. Um, and when you describe Black feminist anthropology and its methods and its theoretical contributions is one that's not trying to explain Black life um, and compare it necessarily to white life, right? Or white feminist life. It's it's about how do we how do we stand, as you say, how do we talk about how we're in it, right? About it um, and really bring that to to other folks in the discipline on in a way that um, doesn't try to apologize, right, for for Black life. And so, as Alyssa mentioned, and as you've mentioned, right, you have decades of work for folks to <laughs> like look through. Um, and one thing that really happens over time as scholars develop their theoretical, you know, tools and their frameworks is change and growth. And so we as graduate students, we think all the time that like the things we publish now are going to define us. Um, and we know that that may not be the case when we reach faculty status. So one question that we have for you was, if you could revise any of your published pieces, which one would you change and how? Nada. Nada. And, and none, <laughs> none of them. And the reason I okay. say that is that the advantage I had uh, in becoming an anthropologist, first, I never took any anthro courses as an undergraduate. So I literally was a blank slate walking into the social sciences and into anthropology. And so I learned it from the ground up and rooted it, but I'm also drawing upon my literary background. Mm -hmm. And as someone who is a practicing published poet, mm -hmm. uh, I've been in over 16 magazines and anthologies. And if you go back to the classics, Black Sister, um, um, 
Oh, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the double stitch. You know, these are classic anthologies of Black women that were coming out like in the 80s and the 90s. Um, you know, I had poems published in Essence magazine, um, Black World, which you know, no longer exists. I was the Gwendolyn Brooks uh, winner in poetry in 1975, 74, 74, 75. And so one of the things you learn when you're workshopping your, your poetry or your creative work is that it's a process. Mm -hmm. And so, but at some point you have to let it go. And I also used to teach creative writing. And one of the distinctions I would make, uh, I used to teach creative writing for women in the Women's Studies Program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I would say to uh, the, the participants, there are people who write and there are writers. Now, what is the difference? It is not about the quality of the work because you can have exceptional people who write, but a writer understands that there's an audience out there and that once they publish it, it's no longer theirs. They don't, we don't get to dictate the interpretation and meaning. People can take what we write and they can take it, you know, lots of different places. Uh, and so for me, when I write anthropology and I do a lot of drafts, I have very iterations, but once I get to that final piece, it's done. So one of the things that I have done is in my book contracts, I do not do revi rev revisions or updates. You know, I just cross that out. What I did was relevant at that moment in time. I want to maintain the integrity of that. And I was asked, for example, to revise Black feminist anthropology. And I had to sort of think about it. And I thought, huh, okay. They wanted me maybe add some younger folks to it. And I thought, there's an integrity mm -hmm. to why I did that book the way I did. First of all, it's only people whose ancestry is rooted in being native-born Black Americans. So it's not a diaspora book because their pe other people had done that. It was very much saying, how does the racial history of being born and having your ancestors having been enslaved or possibly freed, but rooted in the United States, not the Caribbean, you know, not Latin America, but in the United States, how does growing up, you know, in segregated or post-segregated America influence the kind of anthropology you did? So there's an intentionality about that. Mm -hmm. And I would say that in terms of revisions, the question is, we can learn from the history. What I wrote about women of beliefs and, and pub, did the research in 91 finished my dissertation in 93, and it got published in 1996, it gives people a point of reference. It gives them, so to go back and try and look at it again, well, some of the people might not be around, mm -hmm. uh, the conditions have changed. That's the work for the next person. You know, there's another scholar who then can take up, you know, the mantle where I left off. And I think I would like to sort of invoke Toni Morrison, who really says, I write for Black women. You know, she's very clear that her of who her audience is. And I am writing for community people uh, giving voice or what I call invoicement, not empowerment, but invoicement to like the, the, the women of Belize that I studied. These are ethnic women. They are of African descent. They are of Garifuna descent. Uh, they are of... Um, uh, mainly those were the two groups, some of Southeast Asian descent. I didn't do Maya women because many of them did not have the fluency in language. And so while I did some observations and I described what I observe, I didn't interview any because I didn't feel that I could get the in-depthness in terms of the language difference in that sense. So I don't go for revisions because I think we have to protect the integrity of what was happening at that moment in time. And so if I wanted to do something, I would now go back and do a different book that says Women of Belize, you know, now or something like that. And there have been other people uh, who've come since I did that book who said, we use your book as the basis, particularly young Belizean scholars, women who are now writing about the conditions of women at that moment in time that 
is now past when I did it, but now they have my work as a point of reference. So I've, I've chosen not to do revisions. Uh, I don't revise poems. Once they're published, they're done. And I don't go back and look at essays and say, hmm, wished I could have done it differently. I'll revise it. I just say time for a new essay, time for a new approach. I'm, I'm really inspired by that. I think that there are a lot of scholars out there who want to have the final word and to be, you know, the, the major voice. I'm the one who said this, and this is the, the definitive work on whatever their subject is. So I'm really inspired by, you know, you really enacting what is black feminism and opening spaces for other people to build on the work that you've done. And that's what I felt very seriously when uh, my, my publishers approached me and I thought about it. And I thought, first of all, I'm no longer in the academy. So my relationship to, to, to sort of expand this book, the question is for who? You know, it's, it served its purpose. When, when people come up to me at, at conferences like the National Women's Studies Association and they walk up to me and they say, Black feminist anthropology saved my life. Okay. What more do you need? I mean, you can't get any better than that. The book also won an outstanding academic title award from Choice Magazine. And it was an edited book, which is not, they don't often give that award to edited books. Well, they're not going to look at a revised edition again for the award. There's only one award, right? And then I thought, well, you're competing with yourself, you know, which version of the book are people going to buy? And so there's also a kind of um, uh, economic dimension to it is that you get royalties from books. Uh, I did do get royalties from some of my books. And if there's a new version out there, then people are going to be buying that version rather than the original version. I'd rather people use the original version as a point of reference and then go off and write their own book. There is nothing new under the sun. None of us can claim that we have the, the last word on anything because mm -hmm. there's always going to be a new perspective, right? So this is what I wrote. And as you see, Whitney Battle Baptiste came in and did a book called Black Feminist Archaeology. Who would have thought, right? So she's now taking it into a subfield in a whole different direction. And so there are lots of voices. There's a multiplicity of voices out there on what constitutes Black feminism, and mine just establishes the benchmark that I wanted to do at that moment in time. You know, it has longevity. Uh, Women of Belize has now been in print for almost 20 years. Uh, it will be, let's see, Black feminist anthropology hit the 20-year uh, mark in 2021. Yeah, and so, yeah, so, you know, it's, it will have more benchmarks. And so I just hope it just continues to uh, inspire people, but I don't think it needs to be revised. Well, speaking of benchmarks and of course your book award, the outstanding book award, it's, you know, of course we love having our work recognized and yes. celebrated and, you know, you have several notable accomplishments, but of course those external awards and accolades, they aren't always you know, what we, we ourselves are most proud of. So what is for you the highlight of your career? Wow, <laughs> that that is a hard one for me because I've had multiple careers. I started mm -hmm. out as a poet. Uh, so I've won award, awards for my poetry. I then became an administrator in higher education and I've done some amazing things. I was president at Shaw University. That's certainly an accomplishment. I was an associate vice president at the University of Minnesota, where I established a university research center in the Black community. That 21,000 square foot derelict shopping center that was transformed into a university research center is now 13 years old. And I was recent, I was honored last year uh, with that. And to walk into that space and see the transformation, it has an art gallery, uh, we had a multi we had a multiracial group of students doing hip hop performances. We had a jazz. They had a saxophone player. Uh, there were art exhibits that were up. They had food served, and people from the community were there. I left at about seven, and people were still hanging out. To have something have that kind of community 
uh, spirit 13 years after the fact uh, to me is, is one of my, my great ach achievements, accomplishments. And then I worked at the Ford Foundation. I was a program officer. Best job of my life. I had a portfolio of $10.8 million. And I tell people I got to give away money to things that were near and dear to my heart. I supported women's studies, black studies, research on race, class, and gender, and also the Ford Fellowship. And it's come full circle because at my alma mater, uh, the current vice president for academic affairs is a former Ford fellow. And so people said, well, do you know Dr. McLaurin? And she says, of course I did. I was a Ford fellow. You know, so when you see that, those kinds of achievements where you can see the legs of what you've done, that it has it has tentacles, right? And it's reached out and I can still see those tentacles or you might think about it as a ripple, the mm -hmm. effects of that funding rippling out and I can still see its impact even today. Uh, that's powerful. So those are just a few. Uh, I was named outstanding. I was named best in the nation columnist by the Black Press of America for one of my columns. I write, uh, I'm a culture and education editor for Insight News. Um, you know, so I worked as, I worked for the federal government uh, for at the Federal Executive Institute, teaching leadership education to senior federal executives. I've trained hundreds of federal executives who are from agencies like the CIA, NASA, Department of Education, Department of Defense, TSA, you know. So I've had all of these different aspects and all of them have had some highlights that I can look back on and say I'm proud. But I would say at this moment in time, my greatest achievement is founding the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And in founding that, it was not only to find a space and what I'm calling an archival home for my own work, but it also was to let Black women know that our work as activists, artists, scholars, uh, just ordinary women uh, need to be preserved. And so I'm I'm creating that archive. I've raised about $40,000, so it's endowed. And we're in the process of writing grants uh, to make sure that it has that longevity. Yes, and I, I saw that um, you all are recently awarded a Winter Grin grant too um, for the Black Feminist Archive, so... Yes, actually two. Uh, two. The first, the yeah. first was Winter Grand <laughs> gave me a historical archive grant, uh, mm -hmm. HAG grant, and that is for me. That was for me to work on processing my papers, pulling them together, writing descriptions, and then shipping them. I have shipped to the University of Massachusetts 107 boxes that had been in a storage unit in Gainesville, Florida, for over 18 years. So that was one. And so that that the stuff's there now. And then I just have to do the stuff that's with me. But the stuff that I collected from when I left the University of Florida in 2005, the what I collected up to that time and put into storage, those papers, I found papers from high school, materials and wow. things, uh, correspondence, uh, drafts of papers, unpublished things, grant proposals, all of that stuff is now at the university. They've also digitized 397 of my black and white photos. I used to, uh, I took a nonfiction course and one of the requirements was that you learn to use a 35 millimeter camera. And so I have photographs of over 50 photos of James Baldwin, uh, Tony Cade Bambara. In fact, Essence is using one of my photos of Tony Cade Bambara in an essay on her. Uh, Sonia Sanchez, who was one of my teachers, Chinua Chebi. You know, these were some of the people that I was in the mix with uh, when I was there in the night between 1974 and 1991 when I left. Yeah. What? I hear what okay. all of these people were like. <laughs> right. I'm like, what's the, you know, Sonia Sanchez, I will never forget when she came to Duke when I was an undergraduate and she got on that, um, her podium and she was just started just reading. And it was like a moment of coming to myself. And so I just, I don't know. I well, you when you see some of my photos of a very young Sonia Sanchez, okay, she was at she taught at Amherst College, 
And I did an independent study and was in her classroom and her, her son recently contacted me and said, my mom's writing a memoir and I was on a birthday party uh, Zoom for her celebrating one of her birthdays. And I mentioned that I had these photographs, these black and white photos that I'd taken of her in class. And they were like, can we get copies of them? So we were able to scan and send her copies of those that shows the students, you know, sitting on the floor and her at the classroom, you know, and she's very animated. Mm -hmm. And then she came in the 1980s, she had left Amherst, she was at Temple and came back and gave a talk. And I shot an entire roll of film of her. You know, I just shot an entire roll. So I have her at different moments in time. And those, those photographs are being digitized. Um, it's putting together people like uh, Andrew Salky, who was a Caribbean poet from the UK who taught at Hampshire, Roberto Marquez, who used to translate the poetry of Nicholas Guillen, Cuban poet, and Sid Kaplan, who was a Jewish um, American studies scholar who did research on Blacks in the Revolutionary War that became um, a Smithsonian traveling exhibit. Well, I have a photograph with the three of them together, you know, and so what is precious about my photos is that they capture private moments. Mm -hmm. The photos of James Baldwin are not photos that you're going to see because the lens that he is being captured with is a black lens, mm -hmm. as opposed to what you see often on, you know, in, in reports or in articles about him or people quoting him is often the photographer was a white photographer. And you can just see a tenseness about him. In my photos, he's smiling, he's relaxed, he's having fun. He's in a very social setting with Black in his community, Black community. So that's what makes them very special for me. Okay, that's I just have cool. to ask as a side note. Yes. <laughs> what were they like? Like, what was... What was James Baldwin like? What you know at this age? What was I will age? tell was you. Tony came from Barra like. <laughs> well, the one I love. <laughs> the one, well, the one I love of Tony, uh, which they're not using. So Penguin is going to use one of my photos as the author's photo on the back of a. They're releasing the Salt Eaters, and then Essence is doing an article, so they're using one where she's got her hand like this. But there's a great one. She's in. She's in at the kitchen table of a black professor at Amherst College. And she's just stretched out on the table with her arms like this, right? <laughs> and she would then just talk about like, you know, I'm going to school to study white people, right? <laughs> I mean, she just had this great sense of humor. James Baldwin, I had the pleasure of cooking for him in my home. And I remember that uh, we finished dinner and we went to sit in my living room and my daughter was, she must've been about three and she's on the floor and I don't know what she was doing, but he sits and looks at her and says, Sarah Bernhardt, move over and get that girl a stage. Well, my daughter is a performer. She plays the Cora and she performs. She's also an, a, a painter, a visual artist, you know? And so he saw something in this three-year-old mm -hmm. child. And then as we sat and talked after dinner, we had put on Hubert Laws's, uh, his song, uh, Amazing Grace, where he's playing the flute. You have to sit and listen to that. So if you can vision, the sun is setting, Hubert Laws is floating in the air, and James Baldwin just begins to talk. Mm -hmm. He just begins to talk. And what comes out of his mouth is just poetry in, in many respects. He's just listening to the music and it's moving him and he just speaks. And so I had those great moments. I was Chinua Achebe's uh, research assistant. So uh, when he founded his magazine of Okiki, so that's where I learned the skills uh, when I became editor of Transforming Anthropology decades later uh, you know, I was able to build upon what I experienced with him. So I've got great photographs of him uh, as well. But they were real people. And I think that's the private moments is what makes my photographs special because you're seeing them without the lens being that of the white gaze. Mm -hmm. That is just... iconic. <laughs> I just am like, I need actually a timeline. Okay, this is a birth. 
Well, if you go if you go to Credo at the University of Massachusetts, C R E D O, that is the uh, that's the the photographs. You'll also see photographs of my children. I mean, everything is going into the archive. Uh, Digital Commonwealth also puts together. I have uh, photographs of uh, Flora Parim and Return to Forever, which was they used to have a jazz festival. So I would just shoot because part of it is that we were encouraged as we're doing this nonfiction writing is that we also take our own photographs. And so I've continued that practice. When I interview people, when I go places, I'm usually taking my own photographs. So I wrote a piece about the tragedy, the murder of the um, the community, the people and the church in Charleston, the Charleston Nine. Mm -hmm. And it became, I was, I, I was working at Teach for America and I was visiting the South Carolina region and uh, I was staying at a hotel that was literally two blocks from the church. And so I just got up early in the morning and just started taking photographs of the church. And what people had done was actually to create a memorial. So there were flowers, there were, you know, uh, people had left ribbons, they had left all kinds of things, posters. And so I just started shooting photographs. And so I had this vast array of photographs. And so it became less words and more a photo essay because sometimes words can't describe what is going on and so photographs pick that up where the words in photographs begin or they amplify and so I have you know I've I've made that a practice I have about 40,000 photos on my iPhone Where do you yeah. get the space? <laughs> uh, well, I do gigabytes and then I upload. I have an automatic upload to Dropbox. And so I have terabytes, like two terabytes. And so when it gets too full, I'll just move the stuff to Dropbox permanently and delete it off my phone. But I got the largest amount of, uh, you know, of memory that I could. Mm, yeah. You have to. And back, it, to. and back it up too. So backing it up as well. Yes. Um, one thing that I do, I am curious about, uh, I don't know, we have to move on to our other questions, but um, like, and we can also talk about this, I guess, at another time, but mm -hmm. as someone who's no longer in the academy, like the, how you made that transition is something that I'm interested in learning more about. Um, you said you work for Florida, it was the best job of your life. Um, I'm like, I- Well, when you give away money, yes. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> so, you know, I'm just like, let me, let me see what the possible, but you've done- just so much in your career. So I'm like, there's just so many things to ask. Um, but yes, so let's, I'm going to move to the next question before I get us too far off track. Um, well, let me just briefly try and answer that is I get bored easily, right? I'm an Aries. I have a lot of energy. I was going to ask you. What is <laughs> I, 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 I got that Aries energy and I am what they call in Myers-Briggs an ENFP. So I'm an I'm extrovert. An too. Okay, so I need that energy of interacting. Um, I worked in admissions. I started in transfer admissions. So I've virtually worked in every aspect of higher education from getting students in the door. Then I became an assistant dean, getting students, advising them, doing academic discipline. Then I became a deputy provost at Fisk University, working around faculty development, setting up systems. And then I became a university president. So I've seen it, you know, from all aspects, from top to bottom. And I like doing that. I like doing systems and building and designing things. I made a decision to leave the classroom because I've been teaching since 1973. I had a fellowship and the first year was just doing uh, my writing. And then the second year I was a teaching assistant. So I actually started teaching in 1974. And for me, I love the classroom, but I also felt like I had, I wanted to see institutional change. And I felt that I couldn't do that from the classroom. So I made a decision instead of writing a book on my sabbatical, I decided to become a AAAS fellow, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And they have what's called the Science Technology Policy Fellowship. And what it did was to uh, let me go to Washington DC and spend a year there. Uh, we, and, and the fellowship takes you around and it introduces you to senators and congressmen and you sort of understand how policy gets made. I happened to work at USAID. So I worked in the policy bureau. I got to travel to Kenya, to Africa, to, to South Africa. 
I got to, to work on collaborations between humanitarian assistance and the Department of Defense. I learned to write policy papers. You know, so for me, it was like having that, um, you know, expanding what it was I was doing. So I wasn't, it was taking that writing skill of poetry, academic scholarship, and now translating it into policy work. And now I'm probably more comfortable writing uh, essays, editorials, and op-eds. I'm a member, I'm a, a mentor in the op-ed project, mm -hmm. which encourages women to, uh, and, and people of color to become uh, editorial writers. I am a Ms. Magazine uh, you know, author. I write blogs for them. Ms. Magazine was one of my grantees. I funded them to integrate feminist uh, research into their magazine. And that was done. Uh, they got the grant in 2005. And now they have people like Janelle Hobson, who just did that wonderful interview with me in Ms. Magazine on the Zora film called Why We Still Love Zora, Irma McLaurin on PBS Documentary. And so that appeared like the day before the, uh, the documentary did. And it was an interview. She also did another interview with me called Curating History about the Black Feminist Archive. So I am finding different platforms and venues because everybody's not going to read a book. Mm -hmm. Everybody's not going to read an academic article. So the essay form has kind of become my latest thing. However, sometimes, depending on what the topic is or what moves me, what, what, what inspires me, it comes out in a poem. So when I heard that Bell Hooks died, my response was really a poem. And it got picked up by Zora on Medium. I published it on Medium and then they contacted me and said, we'd like to feature it. So it's one of the features in their Zora magazine. The legacy is amazing. That's that's what the words I have. Um, and so, and in thinking about our audience, like we have a large part of our audience is undergraduates. We have a lot of graduate students who uh, are listening to us. They're taking their anthropology training into the workforce, into the academy. And as you said, you could speak to every single aspect of it. Um, and what we've learned in just in our interactions with our listeners is that so many of them want to understand how they can make a change yes. in the world and make a change in the field. And as you said, not everyone's going to read an academic essay. Not everyone's going to read an article or a book. Um, so what would be your piece of advice for those listeners who really want to thrive and make change in the world. Um, and you just have a wealth of experience to speak from, so. I, I think you have to do it uh, as I look back and because my 50th reunion is coming up for my alma mater uh, at Grinnell College. And so I'm very mindful. We've been having conversations. I've been writing stuff. Uh, there's a group of Black women that's called the Grinnell Sister Circle, and they've been sharing their experiences. But it will be 50 years. And as I reflect back on the experiences, I would say one, travel. I think it's really important, particularly for BIPOC folks, to travel outside of our own comfort zone and our own culture, because it gives you perspective. One, we feel that sometimes we're not being included in this culture, but when you step outside the United States, you become you become aware of how much of an American you really are, how much of the Kool-Aid we've actually drunk, the social <laughs> and cultural Kool-Aid, right? And I think that's important because it gives you a different point of reference. It also gives you skills in how flexible and adaptable you are. And those are things that when you go to look for a job, you know, I went to India when I was a sophomore. Right. Um, and then I also did things I wrote for the student newspaper. I wrote for the 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 uh, underground newspaper called Pterodactyl, as opposed to the SNB. Uh, but I would say that when I got to graduate school, I would do reviews for the Daily Collegian. I've been doing public writing since the 1970s. I would write about Cuban troubadours coming. I would do profiles of black uh, professors. And I would send it to the local newspaper and they were publishing it. So I have a track record of having published in newspapers that begins in the 1970s when I was a graduate student. What I say to one is that I was fortunate in that the program that I went into when I went into anthropology and I was an older student, but it was a program that believed that, that teaching graduate students is an oxymoron. 
you don't, you teach undergraduates, you train junior colleagues. And if your advisors and faculty don't treat you like a junior colleague in the making, that it's a student thing, you've got a problem because you're sort of at a moment in time when you actually have developed a level of expertise. You have to believe that so that they can believe that, you know? So I encourage people to see themselves as junior colleagues in the making as graduate students and that everything that you produce in graduate school should have a purpose. My first publication in anthropology was my master's paper. It's a chapter in a book, right? And actually there was a professor on campus who also submitted, mine got published and I hadn't even taken my master's exams at that point. You know, so the writing, it's like, I used to say to students in my classes, they'd, they'd come up with some excuse about, I say, I have mine and I get paid whether you write the paper or don't, whether it's late or not, I still get paid. And I already have my degree. So the purpose of this is not for you to finish it for me, but for you to find a way to use this assignment to amplify and to expand your writing capabilities. Could this be a presentation? Could this be a the beginning of a journal article? Could this be a conference presentation? You know, to begin to think about it as output, because that's what graduate school is aiming towards, is that you have to have some kind of output. Is it the beginning of a grant proposal? You know, so those are things that I think people need to think about is how do you see yourself? Are you a graduate student? Or are you a junior colleague in the making? Are you taking the assignments to see them as simply completing something for the professor? Are you using it as an opportunity for you to expand and, and, and utilize something that's going to be helpful to you then and down the road? Does that help? It speaks yeah. to me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I absolutely agree. Travel, I think, really changed my perspective and opened my eyes. And it's, I think, one of the things that encouraged me to to write more and to, to become yes. an anthropologist in the end. So just reflecting on my experiences while living abroad has um has has changed how I how I see the world and led me to anthropology. You know, everything I do has a purpose. So when I give a conference presentation, I look at how I can turn that into a column. Mm -hmm. You know, I've given people who asked me to do conference presentations and I say, okay, let me turn this into a column. You know, because I have in some ways taken the traditional classroom and transformed my editorials, my columns into a classroom. Right. So I see myself as teaching in the same way as providing knowledge, educating, providing information through the columns that I write. And so wherever it is, whether it's a talk that someone asked me to give like this, this documentary, I'm working on a piece about why I love Zora. Right. That I will submit to Insight News. Uh, so I take those things. My niece gave birth to twins. She used to play for the Lady Gophers. I wrote a story about her. Right. Just taking even those personal moments and turning them into something. I've written what I call uh, their, their, their obituaries, but they're written in such a way that they're sort of creative. Uh, I have one on Toni Morrison. I have one on Chinua Chebi. I've written one on Donna Summers, Whitney Houston. You know, so I have this sort of category of because when I write them, I don't want to write them in a traditional way. I mean, everybody's going to say born here, died here. Their name was this. So I'm always thinking about how I can talk about it in a way that is unique. And so the one for Toni Morrison begins with an invocation to the Orishas, you know, in which I ask them to sort of look out for her. So I'm thinking about how can I make this more interesting? How can I invite people in? I'm very aware that there's an audience out there and I wanna reach them and how do I do that? Same thing when you're writing a paper for your professor, how do you invite them in to what your thinking is so that they're, in, you know, that they're interested in what you've presented? you know, for that assignment, whatever it happens to be. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Build, building on the way that we write about people. You know, yes. one of the things that we hear about Zora Neale Hurston, the words that I think recur all the time that we hear about with her are avant-garde, iconoclast, genius. Yes. And I often wonder if she would recognize herself or identify with those descriptions. And so the question that we have for you to close things out is what three words would you use to describe your career as <laughs> a poet, anthropologist, mentor, professor, Black feminist? That that one, I was trying to come up with three words. <laughs> I know. It's like just even hearing just the, the glimpse that you've given us uh, this evening is like, yeah, what could, what three words could possibly capture? <laughs> uh, Lee Baker once referred to me as he says, Irma, you're just an academic entrepreneur. So I've kind of claimed that. Yeah, he would. You know, you know? <laughs> and so I do I see myself that. as having been in some ways an entrepreneur in my, in my career, both as a scholar and as an administrator. So academic entrepreneur, I would say, uh, Instead of a mentor, I would say leadership guru, right? Because I see myself as uh, supporting and providing inspiration and knowledge to folks about based on what I've done, here's some things that you might learn. And it's more like a guru as opposed to a mentor. Uh, I like that. And and I, I'm a coach as well. What would be the third word? Uh, innovator. You know, I think that I'm constantly trying to find new ways to think about and present things. So for me, when I thought about what will I do, like, you know, I have this video that says, what are you going to do with your stuff? And I'm going to ask you all the same question. What are you going to do with the archives of this podcast? Where is it going to be archived? Okay. And I want you to start thinking about that because you don't have to wait till you get to be my age. You can start saying, we'd actually like to put it in the Black Feminist Archive and there will be a collection. And so all of those will be stored where people can access them. And if you have, you know, photographs or materials and stuff that you can start that now. Right. So academic entrepreneur, um, leadership guru, and then I would say innovator, that that's, you know, I'm always trying to innovate um, in in that way. But that's hard. <laughs> yes. And I feel like that's the, the mark of Aries life is innovation. Um, yes. So that is, to know that you're Aries now, I'm like, yes, okay. Makes so much <laughs> sense. It makes so much sense. <laughs> well, I tell people Aries jump in where fools and angels even fear to tread. Mm -hmm. You know, we, 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 people say, well, how'd you do that? Well, why not? I mean, what, what, what do I have to lose? And what is the possibility of what I might gain? Even if it doesn't work out, there's a lesson in that, mm -hmm. you know, and the thing about Aries is that we bounce back, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so resilient, I would say, is another word that I, I think about myself. People say, well, when that didn't work out, what do you do is that I figure out some other thing that's going to allow me to speak and have my own voice and um, do the things that I want to be able to do, right, to, to give grounding. So I've worked with uh, getting a Black Cemetery in Raleigh designated as a historic cemetery. Mm -hmm. I have tons of photographs that I took for that. Now it's a it's a descendant led group and they now have a 501c3. I started working with them in 2011 and to see how their work has grown uh, is, is just so empowering. And we also have to know when to step away. You know, so I think one of the things about Aries is that we step in, but sometimes we also know we're in it, but not of it. And so you would sort of know when it's time to go, when it's time to move on to the next thing as well. And that's okay. I think the greatest thing is that you have to have a belief in self. I believe in myself mm -hmm. and I believe in the power of what I know I can do. I know what my limitations are, but I also know what I'm very good at. And I take pride in that. And I don't let anyone tell me uh, that I can't. Wow. Boom. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. 
Well, on that note, that is the perfect place to wrap things up. Thank you so much for sitting with us, for answering our questions, even if they were tough. Um, we are truly blessed and honored that you know you were able to join us today and be on the podcast finally <laughs> yes yes and i i appreciate being uh being invited uh and it's great to have the work that you're doing acknowledged and and you know shared with others so that's been exciting to me as well thank you and i want to talk to you about what are you going to do with your stuff <laughs> yes <laughs> thank you <laughs> Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council, the Heyman Center Public Humanities Graduate Fellowship, and donations from listeners just like you. Thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, that telephone, Nokia phone has never gone go away, you know? Uh, we would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And for transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron to access exclusive content, visit our website, ZorasDaughters.com. Last but not least, remember to be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye.